Heavenly Father, we thank you for Jesus, for his life and for his death and for his resurrection. And Lord, because we have life in Christ, forgiveness in Christ, hope in Christ. And so, Lord, I pray in particular for that person who's under stress, who's in a trial. Lord, who find themselves in a position, perhaps, Lord, of distance or detachment from you. Lord, I pray that they would cry out to you and that you would hear. For the sinner, Lord, I pray that you would forgive their sin. And for the person who's in despair, I pray that you would give them hope in Jesus. In Jesus' name, amen. John chapter 18, verse 12, it says, Then the detachment of troops and the captain and the officers of the Jews arrested Jesus and bound him. And they led him away to Annas first, for he was the father-in-law of Caiaphas, who was the high priest that year. Now it was Caiaphas who advised the Jews that it was expedient that one man should die for the people. And Simon Peter followed Jesus, and so did another disciple. Now that disciple was known to the high priest and went with Jesus into the courtyard of the high priest. But Peter stood at the door outside. Then the other disciple, who was known to the high priest, went out and spoke to her who kept the door and brought Peter in. Then the servant girl who kept the door said to Peter, you are not also one of this man's disciples, are you? He said, I am not. Now the servants and officers who made a fire of coals stood there, for it was cold, and they warmed themselves. And Peter stood with them and warmed himself. The high priest then asked Jesus about his disciples and his doctrine. Jesus answered him, I spoke openly to the world. I always taught in synagogues and in the temple where the Jews always met and in secret I have said nothing. Why do you ask me? Ask those who have heard me what I said to them. Indeed, they know what I said. And when he had said these things, one of the officers who stood by struck Jesus with the palm of his hand saying, Do you answer the high priest like that? Jesus answered him, If I have spoken evil... Bear witness of the evil. But if well, why do you strike me? Then Annas sent him bound to Caiaphas, the high priest. And Simon Peter stood and warmed himself. Therefore they said to him, You're not also one of his disciples, are you? He denied it and said, I am not. And one of the servants of the high priest, a relative of him whose ear Peter cut off, said, didn't I see you in the garden with him? Peter then denied again, and immediately a rooster crowed. The chapter begins with the arrest of Jesus, and then it moves into the arraignment of Jesus. And the chapter chronicles maybe one of the most bizarre and tragic trials in all of human history. How is it possible that a just man, a righteous man, an innocent man, a perfect man, how is it possible that he's brought to trial, that he's examined, and he's condemned? Now add to the trial the strange story of Peter's denial. The last chapter closes with this hot-headed, impulsive act of a disciple ready to die for his master. Fervor becomes failure in a few short verses. How does that happen? How does it happen that you go from a place of fervor to failure? How can something that starts off so right end so wrong? I found a story in 1978 during the fireman's strike in England that the British Army took over the duties of emergency firefighting. And on January 14th of that year, they were called out 
by an elderly lady in South London to retrieve her cat. And they arrived with impressive haste, very cleverly and carefully. They rescued the cat and they started to drive away. But the lady was so grateful that she invited the squad of heroes over for a spot of tea. And driving off later with fond farewells and warm waving arms, they backed over the cat and killed it. That's exactly right. You're there for all the right reasons. You're there as a substitute, but you're there for all the right reasons. How does a disciple of Jesus move from courage to cowardice? The Christian, the person who follows Jesus, is constantly tempted to deny association with Jesus, to sometimes distance ourselves from Jesus, and sometimes even to deny discipleship with Jesus. Now, when we saw earlier about the betrayal of Judas, it was calculated. Judas knew what he was doing, but the denial of Peter wasn't premeditated. It was impulsive. Peter's responding to the circumstances, and what are those circumstances? Peter finds himself in a place where he doesn't belong. Warming himself next to an alien fire. A fire that warmed his hands. But the longer he lingered, the more cold and the more bitter his own heart became. It's interesting to me that as his heart grew colder, he defects and he disappoints. Make no mistake about it, though. The disappointment isn't with Jesus. I need to ask you a hard question. Does Jesus know that Peter's going to fail? Oh, that, yeah. Remember earlier he had said, Peter, Satan's asked for you to sift you like wheat. And you remember what I told you? I said, my answer would have been, he said no, right? He's already predicted that Peter is going to deny him. And by the way, has it been your experience that when Jesus says something, what typically happens? It happens, huh? Jesus isn't shocked. Jesus isn't surprised. Jesus is aware Jesus will endure three trials. Peter will deny Jesus three times. The first trial will be before Annas, the former high priest. The second trial of Jesus will he'll appear before Caiaphas, the current high priest. And eventually, he'll wind up before the Roman procurator, Pontius Pilate, from verse 28 all the way through chapter 19, ending at verse 15. Jesus is first bound in verse 12, 13, and 14. He's bullied in verse 19, 20, and 21. For reasons that we don't know, John's Gospel ignores the trial of Jesus before Herod. But he will focus on the trial before the Romans. Let's look at the Savior's arrest in verse 12. It says, Then the detachment of troops and the captain and the officers of the Jews arrested Jesus and they bind him. In other words, they take him from the garden, they chain him and rope him, and they take him from the garden of Gethsemane back through the valley of the Kidron to the palace of Annas. And it says, the captain and the officers of the Jews arrested and bound him. The, the title of the officer who arrested Jesus is Chile Arcos. It, it comes from two compound, well, a, a, a prefix and a suffix, Chiloi, which meant a thousand in the Greek language, and Archon. So Chile Archon meant the commander of a thousand. And so, again, this is an officer who's in charge of a thousand troops. And so if your image of Jesus being arrested in the garden is just a, a couple of guys with, with 
spears and swords, you would be wrong. Literally, it would appear that hundreds of people are on the scene. And so commander is probably the more appropriate translation. They bind him. And we think back to Genesis chapter 22, where Abraham takes his son Isaac and he carries wood to the top of Mount Moriah and there Abraham binds him. By the way, do you think Jesus could have escaped the chains and the ropes? That's exactly right. Chains and ropes do not prohibit Jesus from doing exactly what Jesus wants to do. And we've already learned that when Jesus said, I am, the multitude crashed over and it becomes a type and a picture of the hardness and the wickedness of sin that even in the face of supernatural circumstances, you go on with your job. And so, in verse 13, it says, and they led him away to Annas first, for he was the father-in-law of Caiaphas, who is called Joseph Caiaphas by Josephus, who was high priest that year. And scholars have debated long and hard the sequence of events that, that take place that unfold the night that Jesus is arrested and tried. And again, John's gospel gives us important information that is only found in John's gospel. He's taken to the palace of Annas first. And we have every reason to believe it's because of his superior knowledge and judicial experience. Annas would be able to discern the difficult challenges that the Jesus case presents. And in the judicial system of ancient Israel, it really, really, really was hard to condemn an innocent man unless you were willing to violate several points of Jewish jurisprudence. And so only here do we get the information they led him away to Annas. The identity of Annas is well known in Jewish history. He's spoken of in the Mishnah, in the Talmud. Alfred Edersheim, the noted historian and scholar, writes, and I quote, No figure is better known in contemporary Jewish history than that of Annas. No person deemed more fortunate or successful, but none more generally execrated. Execrated is an old word that means a curse brought on by supernatural powers than the late high priest. In other words, Annas is the power behind the power. He is the figure moving and shaking behind the scenes. He served as high priest from 6 A.D. to 15 A.D. When Augustus was the Roman emperor, he named a man named Valerius um, Cratus to be the first, well, one of the procurators of the Judean province. And this particular Roman procurator named Annas to serve as the high priest. Four of his sons held the position of high priest. And then also Caiaphas, his son-in-law. And that very fact gives us an interesting insight into the social and the political and the economic circumstances of what was happening in Jerusalem and Judea during the time of Jesus' ministry. There was a brief period in Jewish history when the high priest would occupy the office and it was a lifetime position, just like in our own culture and in our own government. When you are named to the Supreme Court, you serve on that court for the rest of your life. But just like in our culture and society, if you become the president of our country, you serve a term and then the terms are limited. When the Roman governor and the procurator came on the scene, they imposed strict term limits. And the reason why they did so is because they didn't want one person to have that much economic, social, and political power. But what Annas did is he retained the power behind the scenes. As a matter of fact, in the first century, the office went for sale to the highest bidder. And so the person who was the most likely to kiss up to the Roman Empire got the job. Dirty politics didn't originate in Chicago. The high priest had exclusive rights to the concession stand 
on the Temple Mount. Now, let me give you an idea. Outside the Temple Mount, you could purchase turtle doves. You could purchase sheep. You could purchase a lamb. You could purchase a bull. You could purchase stuff that you needed. But they would invariably be rejected. Now, to give you an idea, two turtle doves outside of the Temple Precinct cost four pruta. Now, four, it took a hundred pruta to make one denarius. One denarius was a day's wage for a skilled laborer. With a denarius, you could buy two cups of wine, a loaf of bread, and a place to stay. So think about four pruta, and then on the Temple Mount, Annas sold those same turtle doves for 75 pruta. Again, you don't have to be a mathematician to do the math. Let me put it in terms that you understand. You go to the AMC theater and you want to buy a Coke or a, a soft drink and some um, popcorn. You go to Costco and the Coke costs 33 cents. You go to the movie theater and it costs $4.75. What's the first word that comes to your mind? Rip-off is the right word. That is the right word. Admit it. It makes you tempted to sneak drinks into the show, doesn't it? So you can imagine they're tempted to sneak the sacrifices onto the Temple Mount. As a matter of fact, the shops in the Temple Mount were called the shops of Annas. And not only did he become obscenely wealthy. All of his children became obscenely wealthy. As a matter of fact, there's a passage in the Talmud that says, quote, woe to the house of Annas, woe to the serpent's hiss. They're high priests. Their sons are the keepers of the treasury. Their sons-in-law are guardians of the temple and their servants beat the people with sticks. Now we understand why Jesus is brought to Annas first. Because Jesus is a threat, not simply to the Jewish religious system, and not just to the political system, not just to the social system. Jesus is bad for business. Remember, it was Jesus who drove the money changers out of the temple, not once, but twice. And Jesus was bad for business. And you know what? He still remains bad for business. You see, for many people, ministry is industry. Ministry is a place where you go and then they figure out ways to try and take your money from you. And they have one, two, three, four, five offerings. And they figure out a way to take advantage of you. You know one of the ways that you can tell? if it's ministry or if it's industry. It's an industry when they're trying to get you to do stuff for them. And it's a ministry when they're trying to do stuff for you. Give you hope. Talk about forgiveness. Talk about grace. Talk about the gospel of Jesus Christ. In verse 14 it says, Now it was Caiaphas who advised the Jews that it was expedient that one man should die for the people. You'll remember earlier in John's Gospel, in chapter 11, verse 46 through 53, if you just turn your Bible a few pages back, the chief priests and the Pharisees convened a council to debate and decide what to do because many Jews, quote, had seen the things that Jesus did and they believed in him in verse 45. What shall we do? For this man works many signs. If we let him alone like this, everyone will believe him and the Romans will come and take away our place and our nation and verses 47 and 48. And one of them, Caiaphas, being the high priest that year, said to them, you don't know anything at all, nor do you consider that it is expedient for us that one man should die for the people and that not the whole nation should perish. Now, this he didn't say on his own authority, but being the high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation 
And not simply for that nation only, but also that he would gather in one the children of God who were scattered abroad. The idea being because he was the high priest, even though he was a wicked man, and even though he was a selfish man, and even though he was, he was in it for the money, God used him to speak. God can take a donkey and make it speak. John's Gospel is reminding the reader that Jesus is about to be tried and convicted by those who already decided on his death. This wasn't about innocence and it wasn't about guilt. This was a group of people who had already decided his death. And guess what? There are already people who have already done exactly that as well. You come to church, you open up your Bible. You come here, but you've already decided that you don't believe that Jesus is the Lord. You've already decided that what you learned in junior high school science class, that we are, we've gone from molecules to mud to man, that we are the product of a series of circumstances, forces beyond our control. Religion is a myth that people have made up in order to try and make them feel better about their circumstances. Oh, it's fun going to church. It's fun listening to the music. It's fun even reading the delightful stories that are in the Bible. But you've already made up your mind. Because it's not the truth that you're interested in. Jesus was on trial then, but he remains on trial at this very moment. Each and every person deciding. Who is he? And look at verse 15. And Simon Peter. We switch the scene. The scene fades from there back to Simon Peter in verse 15. And Simon Peter followed Jesus. We have to stop for a moment and ask this question. Why? What was Peter doing? Do you think he's still holding out hope that somehow he'll be able to Mount a rescue? He knows that Jesus has said, you're going to deny me three times. He knows that he's been arrested and taken in in the garden. He has sworn vehemently that he is going to stand by Jesus and he's going to stand by his side. And it says, and so did another disciple. Now that that disciple is known to the high priest and went with Jesus into the courtyard of the high priest. You've got to understand something. As you go past the valley of the Kidron and you go up to the Temple Mount, off to the side is a series of houses and palaces where the high priest would have had his palace and there would have been a courtyard. It would have been a high wall. And in that courtyard, there would have been a gate and the gate would have been manned by a servant. And inside of that palace, there would have been sufficient room, if you will, to have several guests. And it says, and so did another disciple. Now, who is this person? Who's this other disciple? Speculation includes Nicodemus or Joseph of Arimathea. Both of them are secret disciples who are secretly following Jesus, members of the Sanhedrin, clearly known by the high priest. One person has even suggested Judas Iscariot. That that because he's in it and he has betrayed the Lord, but it seems highly unlikely that Peter could have brought himself to be seen with Judas so quickly after the garden scene, the traditional view is that this disciple is the author of the gospel that you're reading. It's John. He's an eyewitness to the events that we're talking about. That the beloved disciple is the other disciple. Now, scholars have have challenged that saying, well, you know, he was just a regular old uh, obscure fisherman from Galilee. How could he possibly have been known by the high priest? But in later years, there was a man named Polycrates who wrote about the Gospel of John. And Polycrates said that John the Beloved was in fact a priest by birth and that he wore what was known as a petalos. In the Hebrew language, it was called uh, a ziz, it was a gold band that the priest would wear and inscribed in the Hebrew language was the words holiness to the Lord. Now, if that's the case, then John 
the beloved who wrote this would have also been a distant relative of the high priest. Now, another explanation is that John wasn't an ordinary fisherman. As a matter of fact, that his father was a well-to-do fisherman. Not only did he have sufficient means to hire servants, not only did he have more than one boat, he had a fleet of boats. And one of the most longed-for staples in the in the Jerusalem metropolis was salt fish. And the Galilean fishermen had almost exclusive market on the salt fish. And some have suggested that maybe they provided the salt fish not only for the high priest, but for everyone in his family. Whatever the case, and whoever this person is, this person is walking with Jesus, goes inside of the courtyard, and Peter is lingering outside. And in verse 16, it says, but Peter stood at the door outside. Then the other disciple who was known to the high priest went out and spoke to her who kept the door and brought Peter in. So the picture is the servant girl. And it would have been very normal in those days for a servant to watch the door to unlock and or unlatch the door and then provide simple services like washing the feet of the people who came in. And you'll remember Peter just a few verses earlier has drawn his sword and is ready to fight to the death. And in verse 17 it says, Then the servant girl who kept the door said to Peter, You are not also one of this man's disciples, are you? He said, I am not. Now, the question is awkward in our language. The Greek language expects a negative answer. As a matter of fact, we might translate the question this way. You aren't one of that man's disciples, right? Now, the question might be innocent. Because if the other person is John and he's clearly known to be an apostle and a disciple of Jesus. It isn't necessarily a threatening question, but a question nonetheless. But if the question is asked, and the question is asked in such a way that there is incrimination or fear, or even intimidation, is it possible that Peter feels vulnerable? Threatened? Has anyone ever asked you at school? Hey, are you a Christian? <laughs> what do you mean? Well, I, you know, I thought I saw you at Calvary Chapel. Well, you know, my parents go there. Well, what are you doing with that Bible? My mom gave it to me for my birthday. Well, are you... Oh, you know, I, I just do this to humor my mom, my dad... I don't really necessarily believe it. I'm not. So what do you suppose it was about Peter that gave him away? His face? His speech? You know, the Bible says that the Galileans spoke with a peculiar accent. Chuck Swindoll talked about when he became the president of Dallas Theological Seminary and he's getting gas at a gas station and, and there was a seminary student there and he goes, you're Chuck Swindoll, aren't you? He goes, that's right. You're the new president of Dallas Theological Seminary. Yeah, that's right. He says, what's your major? Speech, communication. Now we laugh because it's pretty clear. Where this person's from, our language often gives us away. And in verse 18 it says, Now the servants and the officers who had made a fire of coals stood there, for it was cold, and they warmed themselves, and Peter stood with them and warmed himself. The verse tells us a lot. The verse tells us that the Roman soldiers have already returned to their barracks. But look, the servants and the officers have made a fire of coals. This seems to be an account from a person who was actually there, huh? There's a lot of details. And we're arrested by John's use of the term. And Peter 
stood with them. We've heard those words before, haven't we? Look in verse 5. They answered him, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus said to them, I am he. And Judas, who betrayed him, also stood with them. That's interesting. Judas stood with them. Peter stood with them. You know what's important about that? He's in the wrong place. He's standing in the wrong place at the wrong time. This is no place for a disciple. The disciple of Jesus has to be careful when he or she find themselves standing in a place where they can compromise their witness. The details, like I said, seem to indicate an eyewitness account. And here's Peter warming himself at the campfire of the world. And look at verse 19. The high priest. Now, we, we switch from the campfire back to Jesus. The high priest then asked Jesus about his disciples and his doctrine. Now, that's not to when we look at it at first it thinks well that makes perfect sense now remember who is the high priest the high priest is Annas at this particular point and like I said he still retains the title of high priest and he asks Jesus questions about his disciples and his doctrine because it, it, it would make perfect sense because the, he would want to know how many are there. Are, there, are they a threat? Um, who are you really? What is it that you teach? In the Jewish legal system, by the way, a person had the right to be silent. In our own culture, in our own society, if you are ever arrested, you have the right to remain silent. And if you have an attorney, your attorney will tell you if for whatever reason you find yourself in a position where you're accused of any kind of crime, keep your mouth shut. And the police officer will say to you, if you're innocent, what do you have to hide? And, and your attorney will say, this isn't about hiding the truth from them, it's about you exercising your right not to incriminate yourself. As a matter of fact, Mammonides, the great Jewish medieval scholar, wrote, quote, our true law does not inflict the penalty of death upon a sinner by his own confession. In other words, in the Jewish legal system, a person's own confession of his own crime couldn't lead to his own death. And so the trial of Jesus is a mockery for a lot of different reasons. Number one, Jewish courts had to be held during the day. This is a night court. And night court was forbidden. And the reason why night court was forbidden is because everything had to be out in the open, in the daylight. They met in the palace of Annas instead of the court. That was forbidden. When you had a capital crime or a capital accusation, it had to take place in the court. Jesus was tried during the Passover week, which was also illegal. The religious leaders are meeting to try Jesus, but again, it isn't to determine his guilt or innocence. It's to fabricate charges in order to condemn him to death. And it becomes a type and a picture of people who ask about you and who ask about the doctrine of Jesus. Hey, tell me about what does that mean? What does it mean to be a Christian? Tell me what Christians believe. But they're not interested in you and they're not interested in what Christians believe. They're looking for a way to falsify what you believe. Many people who claim to want to know about discipleship and doctrines are reluctant to investigate the real claims of Jesus. They refuse when the claims of Jesus threaten their own lifestyle. 
Some people have no interest in allowing the doctrine of Jesus to inform their decision or to provide them direction or to secure for them wisdom. The world asks about the doctrine and disciples to incriminate Jesus and to incriminate his followers and true knowledge of Jesus and true knowledge of the doctrine calls people to listen carefully to what Jesus is saying, to repent of their sin and to turn from their sin and to secure salvation in the person of Jesus Christ. The doctrine of Jesus calls all men everywhere to turn from their sin and to acknowledge Jesus Christ as Lord. And so in verse 20, Jesus answered him, I spoke openly to the world. I always taught in synagogues and in the temple where the Jews always meet. And in secret, I've said nothing. Do you understand what's happening? Jesus is in effect saying, look, I don't have anything to hide. Contrast to what's happening. They're there to accuse him. They're there secretly. They're there to falsify information. They're there to illegally try him. And he says, I have nothing to hide. Everything that I said, I've said it openly. I've said it simply. I've said it practically. If you really want to know what I've said, ask anyone who's heard me. Do you really want to know what Jesus said? Open up your Bible. Turn the pages. By the way, is the content of the Bible secret? Is it available to everyone? Has it always been available to everyone? Not always. But we live in a time, we live in a time when you can open up your Bible and you can see for yourself exactly what Jesus said. You can see for yourself exactly what he said and to whoever he happened to say it. Jesus promptly points the high priest to his public ministry and to his public teaching. And read it for yourself again. Jesus spoke openly, simply, not, and look, read it again. And in secret, I have said nothing. What? Well, what about all of those people who claim that that? The teaching of Jesus is secret, or they claim to have the secret teachings of Jesus that are only available to the enlightened and to the initiated. What about the people who look for secret meanings, symbolic meanings in the plain teachings of Jesus? They don't exist. Jesus told his disciples, everything that my father has told me, I've told you. Everything that has been available to me is available to you. Why should Jesus testify against himself in a prejudiced case where the judges could ask those who have heard him if they really wanted the truth? But they don't want the truth. They're not looking for the truth. They can't handle the truth. Often people will talk to me in order to argue with me. Well, Jews didn't really say that. This is where he said it. Well, you know, there's secret teachings. Read it for yourself. There are no secret teachings. Everything that I've said, I've said openly. If you want to know what Jesus said, open up your Bible. You know, I've had people tell me, you know, I've read the Bible from cover to cover. Oh, really? How many books are in the Bible? I forget. Okay. So you say you've read the Bible. Yeah. Can you tell me the theme of not... There's 66 books in the Bible. I want you to tell me the theme of one book. Not 10 books. Not 20 books. Not even 33 of the 66 books. Just tell me the theme of one book. When cultists come to my door, Jehovah's Witnesses and Mormons, when I ask them that question, you know how many have been able to tell me the theme of even one book in the Bible? None. Do you want to know why? Because they read the Bible not in its context, but outside of its context. And that's why when you come to this church, you'll notice that we happen to be in John chapter 18. And where were we earlier? At the beginning of John chapter 18. And where were we before that? John chapter 17. And where were we before that? John chapter 16. We teach 
verse by verse and chapter by chapter and book by book. And I'm constantly bringing you back to the context. And in verse 22 it says, And when he had said these things, one of the officers who stood by struck Jesus with the palm of his hand, saying, Do you answer the high priest like that? By the way, the Greek language says, The officer gave Jesus rapisma. That's the word. Isn't that a cool word? Rapisma. In the ancient Greek, it meant to hit someone with a club or a rod. Here it means to slap his face. Who is this officer? He's a Jew. He's a Jew. He is an officer employed by the high priest, and he is a Jew, and he has slapped his creator in the face. Can you imagine? Slapping the person who made you, the person who loved you, the person who formed you, the person who knew about you before the foundations of the world, the person who arranged for you to be conceived in your mother's womb, who, cons- who arranged for you to be born, who arranged for you to live every moment of every bit of your life. Now imagine you're that officer and you're transported into eternity future and you see a person sitting on a throne and he looks exactly like the guy you slapped in the courtyard. Can you imagine going to court And there's the guy that you pushed down the aisle in Walmart. And you go, this is not good. What a picture of the way that the world treats Jesus. The world loves to mock Jesus. You know, it's almost impossible for me to turn on my TV and flip through the channels and not find at least one person mocking Jesus, mocking Christians, mocking Christianity. Do you want to know why? Because the world loves to mock them. Man-made religion loves to give people permission to live any way they want apart from God without forgiveness of sin, always being accepted by God because they're accepted by God on their own terms. And the officer reminds the defendant that the defendant is not in a position to tell the judge how to conduct himself in his own court. And the officer is offended that Jesus would dare suggest to the high priest how to conduct a trial. And there are people on the History Channel. And there are people on the Science Channel. And there are people in whatever channel you want to pick who are absolutely offended that Jesus would suggest how you should conduct yourself. What gives you the right to tell us what to do, Jesus? Creator, Lord of the universe, happened to have made you from scratch. But see, this is one of the very good reasons why I am not the Lord. You know, I'm, I'm an Italian person. You slap me in the face. And it's going to be very, very difficult for me to turn the other cheek. I will. But you slap the other side of my cheek and all bets are off. Can you imagine? If I were Jesus, I would just think thoughts of burnt toast. But Jesus doesn't think thoughts of burnt toast. Jesus answered, if I have spoken evil, bear witness of the evil. But if well, why do you strike me? Do you understand what's happening? Jesus reminds the officer and the judge, if I've said something illegal, if I've said something that is inconsistent with the truth, If I've said something or taught something that is illegal, then call the witnesses. They should be called. I'm asking that my rights be honored. I'm simply honoring and obeying the law. Why would you hit me for doing exactly what the law requires? And by the way, the word translated strike is darrow. 
It, it appears some 15 times in John's Gospel, and it's always translated, except for here, to beat. And we're impressed that the high priest doesn't rebuke the officer. You know what? I had a person recently say to me who's been accused of crimes, but I'm innocent. Well, that's great. It's great that you're innocent. An innocent man can ask for justice. A guilty man can only hope for mercy. Jesus is a threat. Jesus is a threat to the economic system that has made Annas rich. Jesus is a threat to the religious and the political system. But remember, for Annas, his guilt or his innocence is irrelevant. He has to be eliminated. And if he can do that legally, he will. And if he can't do it legally, he's more than happy to do it illegally. Jesus is a lot of things, but he's not evil. They charge him not with wickedness and not with sin, because Jesus never lied. Jesus always told the truth. In John chapter 8, verse 46, it says... Who among you convicts me of sin? And if I am telling you the truth, why don't you believe me? You know what's the worst thing that you can do to Jesus? It isn't to slap him. It isn't even to make fun of him or his disciples. You can bind him. You can slap him. You can spit on him. You can take him. You can lacerate him. You can take him and affix him to a piece of wood. And you can suspend him between heaven and the earth. And that's not the worst thing that you can do to him. You know what's the worst thing you can do? Simply reject him. Irrelevant. The worst thing that you can do is to listen to what he says and then say, I don't believe you. This is what he says You're a sinner in need of a Savior. You don't have to die, and it doesn't have to end badly. There's hope for you and love for you and forgiveness for you. That's the message if anyone's willing to listen to anything that he said for the first 17 chapters of the book. And in verse, in verse 24, this says, Then Annas sent him bound to Caiaphas, the high priest. Since, by the way, is in the heiress tents. Annas places the chains back on Jesus and remands him into the custody of Caiaphas. Why? It's exactly like the world. We need to find more proof to discredit Jesus. We need help to prove that he's not the Son of God. But John doesn't transport us to the trial before Caiaphas but rather transports us back to the courtyard. Look what it says in verse 25. Now Simon Peter stood and warmed himself. Therefore they said to him, You're not also one of his disciples, are you? He denied it and said, I'm not. Now again, I want to draw quick attention to that phrase where Peter is standing. Now Simon Peter stood and warmed himself. When I read that again, I couldn't help but thinking what the psalmist wrote. Blessed is the man that stands not in the way of sinners. Surrounded by the enemy, Peter should have remembered Psalm 2. The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed. Stand for the Lord. Or excuse yourself and go home. And you will find yourself in a place where you're with the unbeliever or you're with the, uh, with the believer. Peter's not alone. Have you ever been in a place in your life where your testimony suffered significantly because you were in the wrong place at the wrong time standing with the wrong people by the wrong fire. 
The world's fire seems to offer Peter some comfort. But he's about to be badly burned. And that's what will happen to you. If you find yourself standing in the wrong place at the wrong time. We move from where Peter stood to what Peter said. He denied it. If you're standing in the wrong place, the chances are you might say the wrong thing. And look at verse 26. One of the servants of the high priest, a relative of him whose ear Peter cut off, said, Didn't I see you in the garden with him? Now, you don't have to be like a movie maker that certain scenes are pretty memorable. If just a few hours earlier you saw a guy hack a relative's ear off, that's, that's kind of an image that sticks with you for a while. And so imagine, didn't I see you in the garden with him? Do you ever wonder what Peter could have said? How's he doing with that? You know, I was there. And I remember my stupidity. I was actually trying to kill your cousin. I missed and cut off his ear and remember the Savior was there. And he stuck his ear back. Is he, is he, can he hear okay out of that ear? But Peter, Peter, the fear grows. Peter's afraid. He's afraid about what the crowd might do. He's vulnerable to ridicule. He's vulnerable to abuse. He's vulnerable to arrest. He's vulnerable to death. Do you understand what's happening? Peter is afraid that they might do to him exactly what they were doing to Jesus. Do you get that? Peter is afraid that they could do to him what they're exactly doing to Jesus. And that's when he stumbled. And that's when you're most likely to stumble. When you're afraid. When you're afraid that someone might do to you what they did to Jesus. I want you to understand something. Peter, at this point, is unable to love them more than he loves himself. Because he hasn't been made perfect in love. And there's an important lesson that lays ahead for Peter. He will come to a place where he loves them more than he loves himself. He is willing to deny himself. He's willing to pick up his cross. He's willing to surrender. He's just not willing to do it right at that point. And guess when you are going to be most likely to live a life Free from denying Jesus over and over again. It is when you live a life of self-denial. And the moment that you're willing to do that. The moment you are willing to love them more than you love yourself. You have an opportunity to stand with Jesus. And look at verse 27. Peter then denied again and immediately a rooster crowed. We've gone to the place where Peter stood. To the place where Peter speaks. To the images where Peter was seen to sin. Peter denies Jesus for the third and the final time. You know what? The moment that you deny Jesus, it's proof positive that you fear people more than you fear God. And make no mistake about it, any unbelieving crowd could put pressure on any of us. Peter needed to stand in one of three places. Next to Jesus. 
or alone with God, seeking strength, seeking wisdom, seeking comfort. And when I say alone with God, I'm not suggesting even for a moment that Jesus isn't there. There are times in your life where because of sin and because of circumstance, the presence of Jesus and the presence of God seems far, far away. But it is so much better for you to be by yourself than with everyone else who doesn't believe. You need to be in one of three places, standing with Jesus, standing alone, or standing with your brothers and sisters, praying for one another, dividing the sorrow, sharing the joy. By the way, according to Jewish law, it was not lawful to keep a rooster in the holy city. So scholars have debated, well, how come the rooster crowed? Well, the Romans kept time in four watches, 6 to 9, 9 to 12, 12 to 3 o'clock in the morning, 3 o'clock in the morning to 6 o'clock in the morning. And after the third watch, to mark the changing of the guard, there was a trumpet call at 3 o'clock in the morning. And the trumpet call was called in the Latin, Galicinium. In the Greek language, it was called Electorophonia. Both mean the rooster crows. It may well mean that Jesus said to Peter, before the trumpet sounds the cock crow, you will deny me three times. Everyone in Jerusalem would have heard the trumpet sound at three o'clock in the morning. And at three o'clock in the morning, Peter has been given three opportunities to confess Jesus. And he's denied Jesus. Peter's chosen the warmth of the world's fire rather than the cost of Christ's witness. Blaise Pascal, the famous French philosopher, said, There is a virtuous fear which is the effect of faith and a vicious fear which is the product of doubt and distrust. Persons of the one character fear to lose God. Those of the other character fear to find him. What do you fear? Are you afraid that you might find God? Are you afraid that you might lose Him? The Bible makes it abundantly clear that when Jesus comes to you and He says, I'll never leave you. I'll never forsake you. I'll always be with you. Martin Luther King Jr. once famously said, Courage is an inner resolution to go forward in spite of obstacles and frightening situations. Cowardice is a submissive surrender to circumstance. Courage breeds creative self-affirmation. Cowardice produces destructive self-abnegation. Courage faces fear and thereby masters it. And cowardice represses fear and is thereby mastered by it. Courageous men never lose the zest for living even though their life situation is zestless. Cowardly men overwhelmed by the uncertainties of life Lose the will to live. We must constantly build dikes of courage to hold back the flood of fear. And for Peter, the dam has broken. And the flood of fear has washed over the circumstances of his heart. And he's going to need to know more than ever the truth about Jesus and the truth about what he said. Heavenly Father, we thank you and praise you for Jesus. Lord, each and every person is going to find themselves standing in the not too distant future in a place where they don't belong. Lord, I pray that they would politely excuse themselves and get out of there. 
Lord, we pray that we would want to either stand with Jesus or stand with God all by ourselves. If everyone, if everyone, if everyone has turned their back. Lord, but we thank you for brothers and sisters. We thank you for believers. We thank you for men and women that we can stand with and pray with and be encouraged by so that we can divide the sorrow. So that we can share the joy. Lord, we know that sometimes we find ourselves in a place where we've denied you. But Lord, we thank you for your grace and your mercy. That if we confess our sin, that you're faithful and just to forgive us and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So that we can stand in the place of acceptance. And stand in the place of forgiveness and stand in the place of hope. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand.